welcome back to Socially Divorced, the podcast dedicated to breaking up with societal standards and social expectations. I am Arena Easton, your host, and as you know, I always have a friend that's helping me navigate the woes of life while activating not only my, but our greatness, and more importantly, loving our purpose while doing so. So, before, in part one, my friend of the day, Dr. Dia Goodman, she shared with us some tips on how to navigate the relationship with self. And in that discussion, um, we, you know, she shared some tools about filtering what we ingest, about having this gratitude discussion with yourself and having this positive internal monologue and how that impacts your relationship with others. So I wanted to invite her back to continue that discussion on another level, but going into discussing these trigger words that everyone is walking around saying, posting about, but not really taking into consideration how those things impact them. If one more person posts childhood trauma, toxic masculinity, oh, it's your ego talking, male fragility, um, I'm an empath, or about being woke, or your energy, and all of these things, and not everyone's saying them, and they're using them, but they're not using them effectively. They're not creating the tools to navigate life with knowing what those things are. So I asked her to come back so we could talk about that and also get into my word of the year for 2018 is the word of depression. Everyone's walking around saying that they were depressed, and I want her to speak to the difference in depression and extreme sadness, as well as understanding that some of the things can be self-inflicted in circumstances, and that's not what depression is. So, welcome back, Dr. Adia Gooden. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be back. (laughs) Um, So, let's get right into it. Let's talk about these words. Have you noticed an influx in people using these these terms in mainstream society? Childhood trauma, toxic masculinity, triggers, male fragility, in, being an empath or being woke. Like, what is all that about? What are we talking about when people say that? Yeah, I, I have noticed there's a lot more people talking about these things. And on the one hand, I think it speaks to the fact that the stigma around mental illness and talking about mental illness and addressing mental illness is going down. So I think that that's a good thing. But I also agree with you that I feel like we're throwing around a lot of terms without really reflecting on what it means, um, how we're engaging with these issues. And I also sort of start to get concerned when it feels like people are over-identifying with something like being a depressed person, right, or saying they're depressed or over-identifying with sort of the person who points out all the toxic masculinity, right? So when we don't kind of deal deal with these issues in a more nuanced way, it can become problematic. And I think that's what you're pointing out. So in reference to, let's start with childhood trauma. A lot of individuals, or I've seen posted, I've read articles, even within my own friend circle, they're like, oh, you need to deal with this childhood trauma, or you need to, or even me, you know, I've posted before, like, hey, don't come and try to date me unless you've dealt with your childhood traumas, right? What are we talking about when we talk about childhood trauma? Because I think 
some people may have misunderstood that we're not talking about the fact that your mom didn't buy you your favorite color bike when you were mm-hmm. 10. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, trauma is definitely sort of in the in the popular culture kind of lingo right now. And it can mean sort of a range of things. So we sort of sometimes talk about like big T trauma versus small T trauma. So at the sort of most um, severe end, there's like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And not everybody who experiences a trauma like witnessing gun violence or witness or experiencing a sexual assault develops post-traumatic stress disorder, but people can. And then there are traumas that could be relational in nature or ongoing in nature that shape the way that we interact with ourselves and the world, right? So, This could involve, you know, it could involve sort of on more of an extreme level being molested as a child. It could also involve some serious abandonment, right? So maybe you were, you know, your parents were married and then your parents got divorced and your father left. And because of whatever reason, you no longer had a relationship with your father. That could feel like abandonment and that could create what I would call relational trauma, right? So these aren't you know, not getting what you wanted when you wanted it. Not It's not having sort of a normal, difficult or disappointing experience. It's a very significantly painful, um, ex- emotionally or physically painful experience that has significantly impacted your life. Um, and often the traumas that we experience, then um, if we don't process them and heal from them, they can then... Um, influence the way that we interact with the world. They can influence our relationships. And the challenge is when we sort of get into this dynamic of excusing someone's abusive behavior because they've had childhood trauma or sort of like stigmatizing someone because they've had childhood trauma and kind of like, I don't want anything to do with you until you deal with your traumas, right? When what we know is that it's really important to respond to trauma with understanding and kindness and compassion, but it doesn't mean that you, that people can't, um, people are relieved of taking responsibility for their actions, right? Even if they, if they had past traumas, right? So someone who's abusive to someone else can't say, well, I was traumatized as a child, so I don't take responsibility for that, right? We can't excuse harmful behavior because that just continues the cycle. Do you think that majority of relationships, um, and not in any specific demographic, do you think people are operating from a place of deficit and from a place of trauma and people are bonding um, in relationships? May it be friendships? This doesn't have to be as far as romantic relationships. Do you think that in life we tend to bond with people from a place of deficit and from a place of trauma? versus from a place of abundance of love and healing? That's a good question. Um, I think that that does happen to a certain extent, right? I think, you know, even on like lower levels. So one of the things that I'm working on is, is not complaining, is to stop complaining so much or at all. And what I notice is that with my friends, the way we often con- connect is through complaining. And then when I don't have complaints to share, I find myself a little bit at a loss about how to connect. And I think that that's a small example of the way that we sort of 
connect and try to build relationships around what is wrong rather than what is right. And I'm not saying that I don't share positive things with my friends because I certainly do, but just noticing that that's often the go-to, oh, the weather sucks, oh, this happened, oh, that's the problem, right? And I think in romantic relationships, we're often attracted to the people who um, treat us in a way, if we've had a relational trauma, they treat us in the way the person who traumatized us treated us, right? So there's this thing that happens in relationships where you, you know, if your father was absent, right, sort of a classic example, if your father was absent, and then you're partnering with someone and you tend to be attracted to the person who's distant and absent sometimes. Because part of what we're sort of subconsciously trying to do is fix our relationship with our father through our relationship with our new partner, right? And so what we're trying to do is get our new partner to love us the way our father never did to, in order to heal that trauma. And that's why we need to do the work of healing our trauma so that it doesn't then guide who we're attracted to and who we're trying to be in relationship with. And then we sort of often people get in relationships where each person's trauma is triggering the other person um, instead of from a place of feeling whole, feeling content, feeling generous and like you have a lot to give. Right. Even the the term, you know, you complete me is a problematic way to approach relationships. Right. Ideally, there are two whole and complete people joining with each other instead of people feeling like they need someone, they need a partner to complete them in a way that they feel incomplete internally. So it's interesting that you say that because I, I, I used to tell my mom that I learned to treat men the way that I watched her engage with men. But mm-hmm. when I became, that's what I said as a teenager, I said that because my mom's a very strong, independent woman and their behaviors that I had, I noticed, like, I I got this from my mom. That's easy to see. But it wasn't until I got in my 20s that I recognized the way I learned to receive treatment from men. Mm-hmm. It was from watching my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was present in my life. My mother was present in my life. I did grow up in a single family home, but my I know who my dad was. He, you know, we have a relationship. But Watching him engage in with women, I didn't realize until I was in my mid-20s that that interaction that he had with women throughout my life, it cultivated the way I interacted in receiving treatment from men, what I thought was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. then in in retrospect, looking back, being that I think that some of the traumas that I experienced as a child or some of the traumas that I deal with on a day-to-day basis that are, are I like to call them obstacles because they're not stopping me in my tracks anymore, but they're things that I work on constantly. So some of the obstacles that I deal with now, I realize are traumas that my mom experienced. So if I'm learning mm-hmm. to be treated by men the way that I watched my father treat my mother or watch my father treat 
who he was with at the time. That's one aspect. But then I'm also navigating these obstacles based on trying to avoid and repeating the traumas that my mom um, experience. In reality, I was just constantly recreating their interaction with one another over and over again in my own relationships. Mm. Because I never recognized until my mid-20s that, wait a minute, what I think is acceptable, what I think is normal in a relationship is because I watched my dad treat women this way and they stayed and he took care of them and they did this and they did that, you know, and my dad's an awesome man and my mom is an awesome woman, but they were both given the same blank manual that we all were given when we were, when we came out of the womb, the book was empty, the pages were blank. And so I think one thing that I really appreciate about my parents is in them being transparent about their lives, their lives and their traumas and, you know, in trying to raise their children and being good human beings is being able to discuss with them, hey, you know what? This wasn't healthy. This wasn't okay. You know, and as I've gotten older and have become more comfortable in having that dialogue with them, they open up more about their experiences as kids. And then I see now we understand. Now I can see why they've done the things they do. Now, now I can understand and understand myself more and now change my behavior and what I put into a circumstance and what I'm attracting and the energy that I'm putting out there. And it also, that lesson and that journey has allowed me to be able to evaluate not only romantic relationships, but relationships with siblings, relationships with cousins, relationships with friends. And it's allowed me to communicate what I like and dislike. And so that brings me to the next part of this discussion. When you mentioned Think when someone is healed from trauma or what we need to do before engaging in those relationships, how does one know that they have healed from trauma? How does one know we look at healing as if it's this linear process that stops one day? When I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of traumas continues to trigger another one, another one, another one. For example, if you're engaging in a relationship, maybe friendship or a romantic partnership with someone, you may be healed from one thing. But something that person does triggers something else. And it becomes this cyclical interaction with one another that's constantly triggering different things. And so how does one person know that they're healing? They, they've healed. Is it like alcoholism where it's always a work in progress and you have to remove yourself mm -hmm. from the circumstance to not be put back in that in, in your moment of weakness? Mm hmm yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, I think that it it probably is less of a, like, I've arrived, I'm healed, I'm done type of thing, but more of a kind of where are you at in the process, right? Are you continuing to be triggered in the same way that you were, you know, five years ago? Or, you know, are you triggered occasionally, but not so much, and you can sort of tolerate some things more? Um, you know, I I think that, 
healing trauma often takes intentionality. I think a lot of people sort of hope or wish that they could just ignore what happened, not process the emotions, not process what happened, and it'll just go away. But it doesn't work that way, right? Often it comes up in another time, um, and that's often what we're working on in therapy. But healing trauma, part of part of what the process is telling the story of what happened to you. And telling the story, not just about the traumatic thing, but fitting that into your broader life story, right? So that it's not, the trauma isn't all of you, it isn't all that you experience, but sort of making sense of it in the context of your life, right? Sharing what happened, who you were, what was going on before the trauma, sharing the details of the trauma, and then really allowing yourself to feel all of the emotions that come up related to what happened and then sharing and making sense of how you move forward, right? How you got yourself out of a dangerous or difficult situation, how you coped, how you survived, right? And so telling that story puts it together so that the trauma isn't disjointed from other things that have happened to you in your life and it neither takes over nor it is, is it ignored in terms of your life story. Um, and I think when people are able to do that, it helps to calm your body. It helps you to feel like you can manage the emotions that come up and and are similar to what you experienced in a traumatic um, event or a relationship um, and helps you to feel like you can move forward, right? So if you feel like, let's say you had a relational trauma or trauma in the context of a relationship, you know, signs of healing would be being willing to get close to someone again, right? And it doesn't mean getting close to everyone, but when you sort of are thoughtful and you determine that this is a safe person, being willing to get close, being willing to get vulnerable. Um, it may mean being willing to experience hard emotions, right? And, and sit with your sadness without running away, without dissociating, right? So those would be sort of signs of healing. Um, and there may be some practices that people kind of continue to do throughout their life that helps with it. Do you think that people should reveal in relationships their past traumas? At what point does that occur? I think that's a good question. You know, I think it depends. I, I think it's the type of thing that should happen when there's trust in the relationship, right? I don't think it's a good idea to, on a first, second, third date, you know, tell your whole life story and just, like, dump it. And I think sometimes people do that because they fear rejection. And so then they just, like, I'm going to get it all out right now. So if you're going to reject me, reject me now. I'm going to tell you every deep, dark secret so that you can reject me now and we'll get it over with, right? I don't think that's helpful. I also don't think it's helpful to put if they're central to, if they're really influencing, maybe not central, but really influencing you and how you operate. So... I would say that at a point where you feel like you trust the person that you're dating, maybe it's a couple of months in, um, in the context of a sober conversation, um, would be a good time to share, you know, these are the things that happened to me and this is how it influences me. I wanted you to know so that you can understand me better, right? So it's neither you have to take care of me or save me from my pain, nor ha ha ha, this happened to me, I'm laughing it off. But it's sort of a thoughtful conversation about, you know, this is part of me, these things may come up in a relationship, I want you to understand that. Um, and it's done, it's communicated in a thoughtful way is, is how I'd recommend it. 
I really, really like the fact that you said you should initiate that conversation and have it. And it's not from a place of reacting. So sometimes I feel in relationships, um, especially in observing some of my friends, um, I feel that their traumas come up in a form of justifying some type of poor behavior that have occurred that has occurred mm. on one of the one of the individuals' part. Um, and so either may it be accepting that poor behavior, or it may be they were the individual that did the poor behavior. Um, then mm. they start to use the trauma as a form of explanation, and in in your example, it wasn't at reactive. The explaining my past trauma or explaining the person's past trauma comes from a place of for the other partner to be able to understand and navigate that particular relationship. And I guess being that you said in a few months, at this point, you've act these two individuals in your example, are you saying that they are already in the relationship? They're deciding to be in a relationship, at what point do you feel it's healthy to have that discussion? Because obviously we're not dating. I would hope that if I'm revealing my childhood trauma to an individual, we're not just dating to see what happens and you have four of the people you're dating and I'm dating four of the people. Like, everybody can't be your confidant. Everybody can't be your safe space and safe zone. You haven't extracted enough information about them to make an informed decision about whether or not that is a safe space and safe zone. So in your example, where are these individuals before having that discussion? Yeah, I mean, I would say you're in a, it's it's serious, right? So maybe you haven't quite had a discussion of, um, we're in a relationship, but you have a sense of like, we're exclusive, you know, we're not dating a bunch of people. Um, you know, we're sort of settling into the relationship. That's what I would say. So yeah, I, this isn't, I don't think this makes sense as a conversation when you're dating around and the other person is dating around and it's very casual, but it's more a conversation when thinking about building a more serious and deep relationship and I agree wanting this you know to be in a place with that person where you're sort of talking more seriously about the relationship so I don't know that you have to like have had a conversation about commitment you might have wanted to have a conversation about exclusivity Um, something that shows you that yes this is serious this is something that we're planning to do sort of on an ongoing basis, it's not like up in the air every week about whether or not we're going to continue to date each other. And, you know, I think it's also helpful to have a sense of like, have you shared other things about each other, about yourselves with each other, right? So have you started to have conversations about your hopes and your dreams? Have you started to have conversations about your family, right? Like, are you sharing on a deeper, more intimate level? And that's a sign that you can trust the person, that the relationship is going there. And then, you know, you can sort of ease into sharing um, about a traumatic experience if that feels like it would be helpful to share at that point. Okay. And so, the two, I have... Before we wrap up in a few minutes, um, there's two terms that I do want to talk about, um, and it's specific to the male population because these terms have come up a lot, especially in 2018 and now going into 2019. They're like everywhere. And I'm wondering, I'm always, I always have a concern for how men are ingesting certain things. 
and how mm-hmm. they are relating, especially like with the Me Too movement going and hearing hearing these terms, they come about and hearing the reaction that I've heard from different men. I want to know what is your take on the words? Can you explain a little bit about about what it means and how can these words have a positive impact on how men navigate life? And so the first word is, or the first term is toxic masculinity. And the second one is male fragility. Yeah. So I would say toxic masculinity, right, is, is a way of naming, um, some systemic and societal dynamics that are, can manifest sort of on an individual basis um, around like how men interact with women, interact with people of other genders, right? And so it's a way of sort of naming the, um, you know, person who thinks they know what's best for everybody, who's, you know, dominates a conversation, dominates a stage, you know, puts people of other genders um, or people who are not straight down, right? And so toxic, like calling out toxic masculinity is a way of naming that. And I think that there are some spaces and circumstances where that can be helpful, right? So if you're, um, a woman or just generally someone who doesn't identify as male, maybe you're gender nonconforming, gender queer, right? And you're in a space where you feel um, sort of oppressed in terms of your gender or sexuality and you feel like there were men or sort of uh, masculine systems that were uh, negative or harmful sort of emotionally to you, it can be helpful to name that situation, that circumstance, that interaction as reflecting toxic masculinity in order to avoid internalizing it and thinking that there's something wrong with you and that that was the reason why this negative experience came about. Where I think using a term like toxic masculinity can be unhelpful is when it's very accusatory, right? When it's sort of thrown around as an accusation against a man who's done something that you don't like. And it, it may be that their behavior is problematic, but the challenge I think we have in our current age is how do we create spaces and conversations that are healing and growth promoting and not judgmental and just putting people down, right? Because if you yell at someone, you know, metaphorically like online or in their face and say, well, you're just, you know, that's just toxic masculinity. It really leaves very little room for reflection and for the person who may have done something harmful to think about, what was it that guided them to do that and how did they do something differently, right? It really provokes a lot of defensiveness. And so I think the way we need to be careful is how do we have conversations about issues related to toxic masculinity that actually help all of us to grow and particularly men to be able to be thoughtful um, about their behavior, about their thinking, about the way they interact with other people, um, without judging and shaming themselves, right? So to take responsibility without feeling like they're horrible people. Okay. Do you want, do you want me to just dive into the what it was the male fragility? Male fragility. Okay. Do you want me to dive into that one? Yeah. Like what what is that, and how how can we have a discussion of with 
that term going around and men still be in a place of receiving the messages that's being sent versus I feel like as soon as they hear male fragility, as soon as, I, so, as soon as they hear the term male fragility, they immediately close down. They close the ears. There's nothing you can say. I don't want to hear it. So how can we change that discussion so they can receive the message that is being sent from whoever um, is using the term? And how do we as women use the term in a way that is opening that dialogue instead of closing it or attacking them? Yeah, I think it's a really um, important question. So I think with a lot of these issues and conversations, we need more empathy and understanding. Um, you know, if you come at, you know, someone and say, oh, you're just so fragile, your masculinity is so fragile, then yeah, that's going to kind of prompt a shutdown, right? People are not going to be like, well, tell me about this. And, you know, I'm curious, right? But if you say, you know what, it seems like as many privileges as men have, because they have a lot of privileges in our society, there's also these challenges and stressors about being male and being masculine um, that I think we're just beginning to understand. And I'm, I'm curious about how those uh, pressure you feel around being a man in today's society, how that impacts you. What's that like for you? And, you know, how can we have a conversation about how you can engage with me in a more equi equitable way and I can understand where you're coming from, right? So, when I say, oh, your, fra your masculinity is fragile, whatever, that's a throwaway thing, and that can feel um, accusatory if I'm not using it in a thoughtful way. But if I say, yeah, you know, there's some things that make it hard about being a man because it's so precarious, right? If you wear this, then somebody's going to question your masculinity. If you do that, someone's going to question your masculinity. And masculinity can be very performative. So are you performing masculinity in the way that our society wants it to be performed? And so if I come at a conversation like that with understanding, with nuance, I'm much more likely to get a man to engage with me and share with me, yeah, it's hard. Sometimes it's exhausting to feel like I have to act like this around the guys or talk about sex like that. I don't want to, but I feel like I have to because my masculinity will be questioned. And so if I can join with him in that, then we can have a broader conversation about, okay, how do we acknowledge that and free you from that, that challenge and that oppression? And then also free me, I'm thinking as a woman right now, you know, from my own limitations that come from you know, masculinity being fragile and being so performative, right? Um, so I think these are conversations that are hard to have on social media, right? They're much easier to have in person, right? When you can look at someone and they can see that you're empathizing and kind versus just throwing a term on a social media post that may get a lot of likes, isn't going to actually promote thoughtful dialogue about these issues. So once again, Dr. Gooden, thank you for joining me on Socially Divorced and having this discussion about these terms that everyone is using and to continue to encourage us and being empath empathetic and continuing to encourage us to come from a place of love and light and saying things, doing things that cultivate an interaction and a positive dialogue. So 
change can take place in society with the individuals that we know and with ourselves. Um, thank you for continuing to help me share with this audience how to break up with societal standards and social expectations and educating me not only on these individual topics in these individual terms, but also allowing me to take away tools such as creating that safe space for for guys and not attacking them with those terms but using those terms to be to use those terms to explain to them what's going on versus using using those terms to tell them they've done something they didn't do something they're like this and accusing them of some type of behavior that they may or may not already deem as being bad or not being accepted or needs to change. So being able to know that we need to understand how to speak to each other, to meet each other where we are, to come to that line and that medium of being able to cross boundaries and cultivate those interactions with one another to continue to be good human beings. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is a great conversation as always, Arena. I'm excited. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so you guys can find Dr. Gooden at where, Adia? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Adia Gooden, um, D-R-A-D-I-A-G-O-O-D-E-N. Um, you can find me on my website, which is www.dradiagooden.com, on Twitter at Dr. Adia Shani, D-R-A-D-I-A-S-H-A-N-I. Um, and please check out my TED Talk where I talk about cultivating unconditional self-worth. And I think if we're coming from a place of feeling worthy, it's much easier to have challenging, nuanced conversations. And we're much less likely to kind of throw out terms that are harmful or attacking other people. Yes, yes, yes. And check her out on part three of her part three in the last installment where we discuss happiness and depression, a topic that I am actually really, really excited to speak with you guys about and hear her opinion as well as some guidance on how to na- navigate that in today's society. So check us out next week on Socially Divorce. Once again, I'm Irina Eason and you guys continue to be great. Share your light and don't dim it for anyone. Love y'all. Bye.